Welcome to Sibylline Podcasts, part of our insight series where we aim to provide relevant, timely and actionable analysis in a discursive format. We hope you enjoy listening and welcome any feedback. Please visit our website for more insight series updates. And as always, like, subscribe and share. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Sibylline Insight Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Crump, founder and CEO of Sibylline. This week, we're looking at the world 20 years on from 9-11. As with many of you listening, the events of that day helped propel my own interest and involvement in security and intelligence. Within weeks, I was far removed from my desk in a bank in London, instead serving operationally with the British Army. The world truly changed for many of us once we witnessed a second plane strike the towers on that clear morning over New York, realising that this was no accident. My background and interest is in global jihadism, and so it's worth starting this episode by reminding ourselves of what Al-Qaeda was trying to achieve with this audacious act. Going back yet further in history, the organisation was founded on the basis that the faithful were called to a war in Afghanistan against the Soviets, and yet so few came. Al-Qaeda existed, therefore, to promote the ideal of global jihadism, using the lessons learned from trying to rally to support the Mujahideen and to create, in effect, a better revolution next time. Global jihadism did not really exist in the 1990s. Islamist groups were nationally focused, linked, for example, to overthrowing regimes in countries such as Libya. Al-Qaeda provided high-quality training to these groups, and as part of this promoted their own ideal of a wider struggle. This did not gain huge traction until 9-11, when, in effect, these groups had no alternative but to join the side. The wars in Afghanistan and Iraq served as further catalysts for tens of thousands more jihadists to join this nascent movement. The overriding goal of the attacks was to draw the US and allies into protracted and unwinnable conflicts such as these, mobilizing the faithful once again, but this time doing the job in much grander fashion than that achieved during the 1980s, creating a lasting engine for jihad and the liberation of Islam. The doctrine was, and indeed still is, linked to historical interpretations, perhaps more correctly, misinterpretations of Islam and the Hadiths. The jihadists argue they are following God's true path, and it is this that has granted them ultimate success. This is evident in the release of statements by Al-Qaeda-linked channels on 23rd of August, which argue that the Taliban's rapid victory was due to them following the path clearly laid out by God, and enjoining others to follow their way under the leader of the faithful, the head of the Taliban. As has become typical, Islamic State sources have meanwhile posted a more bloodthirsty and pithy quote from the late and somewhat unlamented Abu Musab al-Zakawi. Released on 28th of August, alongside an image of a wounded US soldier, the group simply stated, the head of America was rubbed in the dirt and our heroes trampled on it until its legend vanished like a mirage. With me today to discuss the continuing implications of 9-11, Eloise Scott, Aidan Morgkai, and James Barth from our global intelligence team. Welcome to all, and thanks in advance for sharing your views. Aside from the more obvious conflict zones, the last week alone has seen jihadist-linked shootings in Texas and Tanzania, a disruptive plot in Uganda, and disruption of funding networks in Germany and Bangladesh, not to mention a wide range of actions linked to the far right, which in itself I think we would see as partly a response to the growth of jihadism. So overall, you know, Eloise, what is the current state of jihadist terrorism globally? Thanks, Justin. Yeah, certainly it remains a very pertinent topic of discussion, even though obviously the, the COVID pandemic has in certain regions somewhat lessened the impact of terrorist incidents. And in particular, the Middle East and North Africa has been a case in point where we've actually seen in the last couple of years 
a real decline in terrorist incidents and deaths caused by terrorist incidents, obviously outside of Iraq and Syria. So that's one notable trend, but juxtaposed with that in then sub-Saharan Africa, we've seen the complete opposite, where actually groups have become more entrenched, their tactics have become more successful. So certainly that is where particular interest lies with regards to terrorist groups and actors. But in terms of of global reach, clearly certain more localised conflicts, even like Syria and Iraq, clearly have a far-reaching implication. And Syria, even though it has slightly dropped off the the press in in a way, there are clearly still issues in the sense that there are significant numbers of IDPs, internally displaced persons, in camps particularly in the north of the country. And not only have Middle Eastern countries struggled to know how to deal with these, the return of foreign terrorist fighters, but so too have have European governments. So once we emerge from the the COVID pandemic, it is very possible that once foreign terrorist fighters start returning to these countries, that we could see a resurgence of attacks, particularly in countries like Tunisia and Morocco. And Tunisia had the highest proportion of foreign terrorist fighters that went to join ISIS in Iraq and Syria. So clearly there are issues there, even if we haven't seen any notable attacks in recent years. Also in Morocco, we've seen that governments and security forces have been particularly successful in disrupting cells. Recently, there was quite a high profile dismantling of a cell in coordination with US forces. So clearly there is still the intent, uh, even if these actors haven't been able to actually stage high profile attacks recently. Right. And Aidan, what, what about Southeast Asia? And obviously I think this is sort of often overlooked, but of course there's been a number of insurgencies running for a period of time in the region. What's, what's happening there in response to events? The terror threat in Southeast Asia has evolved over the years since 9-11 and, and the moments of Al-Qaeda. Uh, of course, initially there was a lacking in capacity and competence in intelligence and counterterrorism agencies, and this allowed a number of high-profile attacks to occur or most notably probably the Bali bombings in early 2002. But as a result, authorities allocated far more resources to getting ahead of these threats, created agencies, in the case of Indonesia, Densus 88, that specialize in counterterrorism. And the scrutiny really helped to damage the activities and capabilities of these groups. Over time, the, the threat has evolved. Of course, we've seen a emergence of ISIS and, and online radicalization and but they've been met with a more prepared state as a result of the earlier events. But saying this, the threat hasn't gone away at all. It could be argued that the responses of the state in, in Indonesia, in the Philippines, which have been quite a hard line, have even maybe worked to sustain the threat to make ensure that there will always be lingering resentment, and which will give groups a chance to, to, to capitalize on in, in an attempt to radicalize individuals. While we're certainly living in a very different security environment compared to uh, 9-11, Southeast Asia, it hasn't disappeared. And I, I think a similar thing can be found in South Asia as well, where uh, India particularly has, again, improved their intelligence capabilities by a, a significant amount, um, especially since the Mumbai attacks. But their policies have ensured that they will remain a target for Islamist extremist groups. Yeah, and of course, you know, Al-Qaeda, I guess, put particular interest on South Asia and recent strategy, I'd say, over the last five years, although struggled a bit to land any really notable blows, haven't they, uh, in, in that part of the world. And actually, what's been very interesting in the press releases of the, the two different organisations, if, if we can 
call them such things as a a press release as such, but the things that have gone out to their media channels. I did notice the Al-Qaeda one, for example, mentioned a number of parts of the world that Eloise, you touched on, uh, and sort of particularly avoided other parts where I think they've lost traction to Islamic State. Um, And it was kind of notable, but wasn't on the list, and was kind of included in the and everywhere else there's a struggle category. And and Southeast Asia uh, definitely came into that into that category. I think we'll go back on later to that, to that particular split in the in the global jihadist movement. But I guess James, you know, therefore thinking about the domestic threat uh, in the US and, and Europe, you know, obviously with that sort of 9-11 spectrum in mind, I mean, what are we seeing in terms of the domestic threat overall? Well, I think that, I mean, firstly, I agree with everything that's been said so far. And, and definitely one commonality between what Aidan spoke about there and, and the US is this massive increase in the capabilities of, of not just the governments in Western Europe and, and North America, but also private companies who have massively expanded their ability to identify and respond as, as private actors to the threat of terrorism. I think bringing in North America is perhaps a good time to also bring in the other kind of elephant in the room with uh, how terrorism has changed since 9-11, which is technology. And the way that this relates to the US is uh, kind of as as both Eloise and Aiden have hinted at, is a, a slight difference in the way that Al-Qaeda and ISIS as well framed their desire to inspire attacks in Europe and North America. It's far less a kind of coordinated network of groups and individuals who are tied to these organizations across the world, but often it's kind of more loosely connected communities online who are inspiring individuals or collectives of individuals a- across the world. So that's definitely been, been a big change. There is certainly a distinction between emphasis on the threat of jihadist terrorism versus domestic extremism or, or terrorism, depending on the country that you're in. I think in the US, it's, it's pretty clear to say at this point in time that domestic terrorism now poses a, a greater threat than jihadist terrorism. But then in the UK, I think authorities would probably suggest the opposite. So jihadist terrorism would, would still pose the greater threat in the UK. So There is variation within the regions, but the one thing that has changed significantly is this shift from quite coordinated attacks like something like 9-11 towards something that's far more dispersed and far more ideologically driven through kind of open source networks for individuals to gain access to. Yeah, that's an interesting evolution because I remember speaking to former jihadists, one of the big criticisms a lot had of Al-Qaeda was that it had this very centralised strategic coordination which required plans to be signed off on effectively and there was lots of communication and coordination as a result that made it very easy for western agencies to disrupt those networks and interdict larger scale things uh, you know by comparison i think some of the uh, the franchises of al-qaeda probably going back about 10 years ago and i'm thinking particularly of aqap started promoting the idea of actually you can achieve an awful lot um you know, making a bomb in the kitchen of your mum, as I remember one of their articles was called in the magazine. And, you know, that seemed to drive that shift towards saying, actually, these large scale incidents won't succeed again. They're too difficult to do. They're too easy to be disrupted. And actually, we should just be motivating people to, to take on the struggle. And I guess some of that success is seen in the incident in Texas. Again, someone, you know, online radicalization, you know, no tangible links to the movement, but, you know, clearly had absorbed the rhetoric, uh, which I think is an interesting they say it's been an interesting evolution and you know, proven to be much more uh, successful, so probably here to stay. And I guess going back to the background and context we discussed at the beginning, you know, has Al-Qaeda succeeded in its goal? I mean, Eloise, what do you think? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I think one thing that I'd certainly say from focusing very much on, obviously, the Middle East and Africa regions is 
But in fact, if you now look at the state of Al-Qaeda, but also then ISIS and these groups that have kind of formed and emerged and linked and then broken up, actually a lot of these groups are quite localised. So this sort of stems from what you guys were just discussing a moment ago, that actually, while there was a sort of centralised ideology, actually a lot of the groups have realised that the either the towns or cities or areas that they're operating in have their own local dynamics. And groups have realised that actually... As you said, they can be a lot more successful by just co-opting, for example, rural communities. So that's something that we've seen across Africa, where groups like JNIM and a coalition of aligned groups have essentially realised that the winning strategy is maintaining and expanding influence in rural areas and essentially co-opting these communities for recruits and resources and things. So rather than staging these, these kind of these high-profile attacks that obviously grab headlines, actually, if they can control communities and things that's actually where they're going to be able to to really grow and that's what we've seen in in sub-Saharan Africa but then also looking at the Middle East you've got groups like HTS in in Syria so they obviously were an offshoot of of AQ but they they then split from the group in, in around 2017 but actually they are now very much focused on gaining control over Idlib so their aims have become much more localized as well which I think also makes them a lot more effective So in terms of whether a group like Al-Qaeda has succeeded in in its ultimate goal, I think obviously the movement has adapted and changed significantly. And certainly in the regions that I cover, I I think there has been quite a lot of success in that regard. You could also touch on Yemen in in that sense. Obviously, AQAP have been relatively quiet. They've, They've gone through quieter patches. But in recent months, they've actually been much more active in targeting security belt forces, which are obviously backed by the UAE and Saudi Arabia. They've also clashed with the Houthis. So this just shows how these conflicts have adopted, obviously, their own dynamics and how these groups have have actually been quite successful in some ways in reacting to local dynamics and and working with them. Right, so you say a global, you know, I guess a global movement made up of regional provinces or franchises or, uh, as you say, just regional movements. I guess it's the extent to which, you know, is it a global movement or is it a convenient umbrella for lots of local movements and it gives them channels and economies of scale as i as i guess the big question around this but uh, you know james aiden what, what do you think on that last point though, i think one of the things that you know both al-qaeda and isis have, have done so well is exactly that it's their strategy has done such a great job at linking this broader eschatological or, or international ideology with these local grievances that individual people have or individual communities have and that's really to date been what's made them such a successful international and global movement is they have managed to connect all these disparate circumstances into one global movement. Linking that back to your question about whether they've achieved their goal, I think you know one aspect of this is most counterterrorism missions outside of the West haven't done enough to focus on those local grievances. And this is something that I think people are becoming more aware of. Despite all of the controversies surrounding the way that it happened, the U.S.'s withdrawal from Afghanistan, I think, is a broader indication of of the kind of realization that this focus on troops on the ground isn't the way to tackle this in the long term. So I think that we are going to start to see a shift towards a focus on local grievances and local dynamics. But the fact that we haven't to date definitely has allowed al-Qaeda to at least realize some of its aims in in that original attack. I would echo what James and Eloise have said. You know, they've been very pragmatic in, in latching on to local issues 
uh, that could you know drive recruitment and activity under a sort of umbrella even if it is in a centralized direction you know work to respond to government being you know taking power in india and in sri lanka and the philippines which they can frame as enemies of islam now and and these governments have partly come into power because of the perceived threat so it's it's almost fed each off each other uh, the response to terrorism and and the the counter response the isis or al qaeda linked groups and as a result it, it the threat is being sustained and it makes it very difficult to really contain fully yeah and there's this there's interesting view I, mean, i guess we can argue if there's one movement or two i think although al qaeda and, and isis share obviously very similar goals i think it's you know they're, they're pretty opposed to each other as well as we know So I guess to some extent, uh, you know, almost Al-Qaeda has been too successful in the form that it actually inspired ISIS that arguably was counter-successful by potentially being too ambitious, wasn't it? So, I mean, it's certainly been an interesting evolution. But I guess if you were an architect of jihadist strategy in the 1990s and, you know, you would know that in 2021, we'd be sitting here talking about the global Islamist movement, the threat it continues to pose in the light of uh, events in Afghanistan. I, I guess you'd probably feel pretty happy that you were doing God's work, wouldn't you? and that you know your strategy was proving successful do we, do we think that's fair i mean from my perspective i agree that you know that individual in that circumstance would feel pretty happy but i also think that one of the difficulties of this idea of counterterrorism is just how broad we kind of end up making our war on terrorism and therefore then this the kind of idea that it can go away i mean this is something that has long been discussed in academic circles but is kind of taking a little bit longer to reach the security community or 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 governments the war on terrorism it was kind of almost a fallacy to really to begin with because it needed to be a war on individual groups and in order to combat terrorism more broadly it's it's not it's not a war that needs to be done it's you know the hearts and the minds it's the the local grievances which we've already spoken about so i do agree with it to to some degree but then uh, on the other side uh, i'm kind of you know what what were we expecting you know at 20 years from now that there would be no extremists from the islamist faith well i mean given that we have extremists cropping up in the west without the islamist faith i, I don't really see why we would have expected that to to be the case now that's a great point i think it comes into that sort of global umbrella regional issues and to some extent of course the propaganda probably masks that and i know where we've most often discussed that internally recently has been mozambique hasn't it you know what is the actual nature of that is that a local issue that's hijacked some international credibility or is it truly a an ISIS insurgency yeah and i think as you say it's blurring the reaction it blurs the lines it blurs the emotions and it it blurs what must be done so i think that's a really important point until we tackle these things as regional issues they will continue to be a challenge and as you said we've got plenty of other extremism going on some of it feeding off uh, jihadism and you know, much of it nothing to do with it so yeah hardly a surprise but um Perhaps the surprise is that we're surprised by the fact this is still the case. I guess we've touched on this already, but a lot of the coverage this week is very much, you know, Afghanistan will become safe harbor for terrorism. International attacks can be plotted. We're going to see a repeat of 9/11, etc. I think you all know my views that we should learn from history, but we shouldn't immediately be looking for patterns in what's happened before because that way you you don't see the black swans. But you know, I guess we should officially answer the question: you know, Will we see an attack of the same scale as 9/11 once again? on that question as we mentioned before the intelligence capabilities of governments is is far higher they are looking for these threats and at the same time the militant and extremist groups 
aren't putting as much resources into one grand strategy or one grand attack because they know it, it will attract more attention, it'll be more difficult to pull off, and it maybe won't be the most sensible use of resources. Saying that, you know, there's, there's a constant race, there's a constant to find gaps in weaknesses in, in security arrangements, and, and they can emerge, you know, blind spots can emerge, and there will always be a, the threat of, of something quite big, and one that once not expected, new technology could be involved in that. Of course, with the increasing use of drones, uh, we've seen that in, in India and in Kashmir with security forces now adapting their strategy to uh, monitor that threat. So while I don't think it's likely, I don't think you can rule out for sure. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with what Aidan said there. I mean, going off of your learn from history without reading too much into the patterns, you know, I, I would say the thing that we should learn from 9-11 is the, the failure of the imagination. It's that unknown unknowns, the things that we, you know, didn't think broadly enough to, to be able to try and encompass or the things that are right under our nose, but, you know, we're looking too far into the distance to realize that they're, they're already here or already possible. From the US perspective, and, and certainly from Europe as well, with a couple of arrests recently in the UK, 3D printed weapons are definitely becoming a big issue in terms of the, the spread of extremism. They have the advantage of being widely distributable. They are also almost impossible to track. Um, and not only that, but as the technology improves, they're going to probably get to a point where they can be completely unreadable by scanners because there's no metal parts to them at some point. And obviously drones, as, as Aidan said, a big issue. And I mean, from the domestic extremism threat standpoint, uh, that drones were reportedly used in the in the Christchurch attack to do a couple of reconnaissance missions. And that is certainly going to be something that the that communities or far right and jihadist extremist communities in Europe and the US start to use more of. So I think from my perspective, yeah, the, the failure of the imagination to kind of see these new technologies as they emerge, because it's, you know, drones are commercially available. We're not necessarily speaking about drones that are deployed or used by the US military that are then captured by you know, enemy forces. We're, we're talking about drones that anybody can buy from Curry's or PC World or, or wherever you're buying it from that you just strap something to the end of and, and there you have it. So it's these sorts of new technologies that people are going to be able to have greater access to that weren't designed for terrorism as original purpose, but can be used nonetheless for it. I seem to recall a uh, journalist-inspired individual in Nevada arrested in September last year, I want to say, had a 3D-printed weapon that was quite sophisticated, for example. Definitely. And they, they now have contests for them. Vice actually had a great video out recently that showed a couple of uh, guns being fired at the contest. And they're getting much, much better. And uh, yeah, I mean, it was just last week, an individual, an 18-year-old, was charged in the UK for having manuals to print all this out. So yeah, definitely becoming great. Yeah, it's a really interesting point. I, I, you know, I completely agree with you. I think that the failure of 9-11 or the repeat of a 9-11 is not a repeat of the tactics and you know, the spectacular of 9-11. It's something that is equally impactful that we didn't see coming, I guess. And that's the spectre, isn't it? And you know, by its very nature, it's going to be hard to work out, obviously, what that is. So I think that's the big lesson for analysts. And I, I think there's a role, I know there's a webinar planned in October, but on the role of fictional narratives and scenario planning, which I think is quite an interesting area for us to consider you know, exactly 20 years on, I think that's a really good topic to be considering is that sort of what if and, you know, what's a credible narrative of something that could really affect us. And I guess for organisations, one of the things to do with that is work back from what would most impact our organisation. You know, you can take almost anything, you know, maybe it would be a nuclear exchange between India and Pakistan would, you know, destroy the back office and organisation, maybe start with that scenario and then work back and say what would lead to that. 
you know, and how could that arise? And that not only gives you things to look for on your critical path, but I think also gives you a scenario to consider that is at least possible. You know, you might put a low degree of probability on it, but at least you've thought about it. And, you know, I think that's one of the ways of attacking this. If you're if you're in uh, corporate intelligence, where it makes it most useful, because obviously you can imagine almost any scenario you want to. It's it's making it relevant that counts, isn't it? So I think that's a really good, good lesson from, from 9-11. Again, especially thinking about emerging technologies and how those might inspire these sorts of things. I guess we started this talking about Afghanistan. You know, I think we're of the view that this doesn't mean Afghanistan is going to be once again a hotbed for international terror, certainly not in the short term. And I think the tensions between IS Khorasan and the Taliban are pretty obvious even at the moment. Yeah, but what's what is the wider significance of events in Afghanistan for the for the global jihadist movement? Well, I think groups will suddenly look to capitalize on the moment, on the attention. As you mentioned, you know, ISIL, K, they aren't exactly partnered with the Taliban, but the the victory of the Taliban will certainly give them a certain amount of motivation and material to use to widen their efforts to radicalize individuals, not just in Afghanistan, but the wider region, South Asia and Europe, anywhere. So um, whether that will manifest itself in, in greater militant activity, obviously will be depend on the response to that. But groups are opportunistic in nature and we saw that with the attack on their airport you know they knew all eyes were on Kabul at that moment and while maybe the Taliban has some shared goals with the group not enough clearly to deter them from launching such a devastating attack so the the consequences are hard to see at the moment one thing is that there'll be less control for western nations in what happens now of course they don't have such an entrenched position in Afghanistan it will be more how do they partner with uh, whatever government is formed how does that uh, balance with how China and Russia partner with the government formed so it will be definitely one to monitor and, and it's very difficult I think to say for certain what the impact exactly will be. I mean, well, in the region, I mean, I think the, the jihadist threat to China is often overlooked, although we've seen the consequences with treatment of the Uyghurs. You know, Uyghurs operating you know, northeast Pakistan, eastern Afghanistan, integrated, certainly with Al-Qaeda, going back to ATM days. You know, to what extent is this a concern for China, perhaps more than, say, the US and Western Europe? Well, obviously, this proximity. China's are far closer. They have a lot of investments and a lot of lot invested in the, the Belt and Road Initiative, with which has initiatives in North Pakistan, and that's crucial to China's general and greater strategy. At the same time, of course, they also have their own concerns of domestic terrorism in the Xinjiang region, which they've responded in you know, controversial and, and arguably too harsh measures in the crackdown there. And then, of course, they'll be concerned that a destabilized Afghanistan, more than anything, would complicate things for them. And I think that that's why we've seen the approach we have from Beijing. They are not looking to maybe have a military presence in Afghanistan and not respond to the threat maybe the same way the Western countries uh, have previously. And I think that's twofold. One, because success of the Taliban there also represents the failure of the US, which is useful for Beijing's current rivalry with Washington, but also from a pragmatic point of view, as I mentioned before, with all the investments in the area and, and the proximity to Afghanistan, uh, they believe that uh, good relations with the Taliban and, and enabling a stable Afghanistan to emerge from this would serve their purposes to, to the greatest degree. 
So I think I'd also add to that some really good points I made. And I think looking at the Gulf region, clearly there's a, in some ways, a similar dynamic where you've got Gulf states, particularly Saudi Arabia and the UAE have, have obviously been slightly surprised by the what ended up obviously being quite a chaotic withdrawal with very little preparation. So I think you've got the Gulf states really trying to almost forge their own policies as we go. I think there's a huge amount of uncertainty, uh, but obviously particularly looking at Saudi Arabia where there have been sort of hotbeds for terrorism. Um, they've obviously had some real issues in the Shia Eastern province, but also they've, they've clearly had some, some quite high profile attacks after 9-11 from um, AQAP and also ISIS. So I think the Gulf states will be really trying to tread carefully. Obviously, in the last sort of decade or so, we have seen quite an elevated security posture, not just from Saudi Arabia, but also in the UAE, where Abu Dhabi has obviously been very cautious of rooting out any kind of Islamist extremist groups. And obviously that's fed into regional dynamics and regional tensions with the likes of Qatar as well. So I think given recent events in Afghanistan, I think the Gulf region is kind of holding its breath. Obviously, there are extremist actors there that could be looking to capitalise. So I think we're really hoping that obviously if we do see an uptick in activity in the Gulf, that obviously the the elevated and sort of the heightened security posture will actually allow for these, these kind of attacks that we saw in the early 2000s not to be repeated. But certainly they, they can't be ruled out. And then just really quickly touching on uh, the wider Middle East, I think sometimes that's gotten lost in the discourse a bit on Afghanistan. And I certainly think in countries like Iraq and Tunisia, they may not be groups that are affiliated with either Taliban or, you know, even ISIS or Al-Qaeda. Um, they might have their very own localised ideals. But actually, if, you know, you know, people view this Taliban victory as a real success of rooting out Western influence, then you, you could see attempts from, from local groups in the likes of Iraq and Tunisia to undermine what are already quite weak governments. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, and again, Al-Qaeda, they actually put Mullah Omar as the leader of the faithful, Bin Laden pretty much engineered that as well, didn't he? And it, it actually put the Taliban at the very forefront of the global Islamist movement, which was probably a mistake for the Taliban in retrospect, given that. But you know, it was a friendship that was forged. It's a real position. And it was interesting, again, that the recent statements reinforce the fact that the head of the Taliban is leader of the faithful globally. I think that does pose a problem for the Taliban because I think we all see them as a great example of a actually really a regional movement that probably wants to consolidate power where it is, thank you very much, and doesn't want to be sucked back into things that cause it so much trouble. But of course, it, they can't change how the rest of the jihadist movement sees that success. As again, if you stay God's path, however tough it looks, however many resources are thrown at you, God will ultimately ensure that you are successful. I guess that's such a strong message for jihadist recruiting and for driving people to either join groups, carry out actions or spread propaganda, become enthused again. Uh, and I think, yeah, certainly that's what I'm seeing is the most troublesome thing, certainly for those regional groups. It's a wonderful message to be able to put out to the people they're trying to encourage. And James, I guess, you know, how much are you seeing this extend potentially already, given the instance in Texas, into the domestic arena? So to try and limit the discussion to essentially the three main strands of what, what I see as the three main strands of, of extremism and terrorism in, in the US or North America and Europe, on the Islamist side, I see the recent events in Afghanistan really to be used as a, as a sense of inspiration for the movement more broadly as, as evidence, as you say, of kind of if you stay on God's path and essentially what you want will become yours and to just fight harder. 
But some other strands of this, which I think are quite interesting and worth noting from the far right side, the far right in the US and in Europe, I mean, especially in Germany, have always drawn from a military background. And I think that there is a danger that we're isolating ex-service members in the way that we speak about both NATO and US's mission in Afghanistan. And that's certainly a worry in terms of domestic extremist groups tapping into that sense of disillusionment and futility of, of the fight over the last 20 years and using that really as a recruitment tool for their own organizations. So that's definitely one worry. And then another interesting tangent for this, I think, is to look at what this means for tech and what this means for sanctions and the way that technology and social media companies specifically interact with extremist organizations that in turn have gained a sense of legitimacy. Obviously now the Taliban is a, is an, is a terrorist organization. However, it is also a government and these are sorts of questions that banks have for ages had to had to deal with in the financial world. And there is a whole set of due diligence industry that was set up on the back of you know, tackling these sorts of questions. But I think that's definitely something that has been brought to light from the, the Taliban takeover in Afghanistan. And I think will pose more kind of broad fundamental questions for how platforms engage with extremist organizations that nevertheless require or at least claim that they require these online services for a public good. Thanks, James. I guess we're coming towards the end of our time, and we could obviously discuss this for a long period, and I suspect we'll discuss it further. But um, I guess the one thing we should touch on, you know, the uh, the elephant in the room, COVID. I thought we'd get through uh, a webinar without having to mention it, but I think it is important to talk about COVID and terrorism. I mean, what has been the impact on COVID, on terrorism trends, and you know, how do we think things are going to evolve in that arena? I think just from the the sort of the Middle East perspective, I think I touched on it earlier, but clearly we've seen in the last few years that actually, besides Iraq and Syria, really terrorist attacks have have kind of dropped off, whereas obviously in sub-Saharan Africa, we've seen the complete opposite. So I think remaining focused on the Middle East, I think obviously there are a lot of grievances that have been aired from governments that weren't perceived as doing enough during the pandemic. Jordan is a case in point where we've actually seen quite large protests during the pandemic. So clearly there is the risk that once restrictions really do ease off, because obviously they have been reimposed in recent months, the Middle East also saw some of the toughest lockdowns. So I think there is very much the risk that once the real impact and the longer term impact of of the pandemic is realised in these vulnerable countries, that is where we could see more of these sporadic and lone wolf attacks that have proven to be quite challenging for states like Jordan to mitigate against. Yeah, to add to what Louise said uh, and to echo for a specific region, you know, the political instability that is inevitably a consequence for such a, a huge event as, as this current pandemic, plus the socioeconomic deterioration in a lot of countries, which will impact a huge amount of communities, increase the number of disenfranchised people, which extremist groups will certainly target to radicalise. There's, there will also be new trends always emerging that extremist groups will hope to capitalize on. One that is probably worth monitoring in the Asia-Pacific region is anti-Chinese sentiment and, and the potential for Chinese businesses, Chinese individuals to be targeted uh, to a great extent by militant groups. There's, there's been reports of you know, social media rhetoric in, in various places, including Indonesia, seeing an increased amount of anti-Chinese sentiment for a number of reasons, obviously, with a lot of Chinese investment. They can be looked at as a driver of inequality in uh, local communities, as well as that, of course, the pandemic uh, started in Wuhan, China, and that has been used as as another way to drum up that anti-Chinese sentiment. So 
while we can't see, I think, all the trends yet, uh, as, as the COVID, unfortunately, is, is far from over, it's definitely going to uh, create a changing landscape for terrorist threats going forward. I mean, in, in the States and Europe, I think one thing that's been quite widely documented is the rise of, of domestic extremism over the course of the COVID-19 pandemic. And part of that is driven by their ability to capitalise on, on specific narratives that involve the pandemic and use that to their own gains. And that's not really been something that Islamist extremists have been able to do to the same extent in Europe and in North America. They haven't been able to capitalise on COVID-19 as a source of recruitment to the same extent that right-wing extremists have. I think one worry that I would have going forward in terms of the impact of COVID-19 on Islamist extremism specifically is that in a lot of cases, uh, specifically in the US, there has been a break between the federal government or the state government and uh, religious institutions. And at times they've kind of, they've been fairly at odds in terms of restrictions and, and being allowed to go back to houses of worship. And in part, I, I guess I would worry that uh, the breakdown of social services, the breakdown of connections between government institutions and religious institutions could exacerbate these, uh, this disconnect between the government and Islam in a very kind of broad sense of the term. And, and that break would allow people to fall through the cracks who had previously maybe been picked up by other individuals at the mosques and by the wider Islamic community in the US. And so that, that sort of kind of worry about the, the lack of oversight and the lack of connection and the lack of shared uh, social community really between the, the secular government on one hand and, and uh, the right for religious freedom on the other, um, that is something that I would worry in, in the long term would be an effect from COVID that, that could be quite detrimental. Thanks, James. And thanks actually all of you for joining us and sharing your views in this slightly longer discussion we normally do. But I think the topic uh, definitely warranted a bit more length and, and examining those things at this, at this particularly pivotal time, given obviously what's going on. For security professionals, I think this all serves as a reminder that the threat is real. The implications of 9-11 are still very much with us. And uh, while a repeat obviously is comparatively unlikely, we do continue to live in an uncertain world where black swan events will have lasting consequences. And as we discussed, I think that's the, the key point of 9-11 isn't the spectacular itself. It's the black swan. It's the shock events. And I think the one thing we've seen as a team, certainly over the last couple of years, has been just how fragile the world is in many ways at the moment with these various pressures. And again, you can imagine, therefore, the impact that a further black swan event will have. As always, we're here to consider the implications of this for all of you. So don't hesitate to get in touch to discuss any of the issues raised in the programme or indeed anything else. We love to get your feedback. So with that, team, thank you again. And Ignacio, I'm going to hand over to you for a look at the, uh, the issues facing us in the next couple of weeks. So Ignacio, all yours. Over the next week in Brazil, protests planned for the 7th of September are likely to gather tens of thousands of people supporting and opposing President Jair Bolsonaro across the country particularly in Brasilia, Rio de Janeiro, and Sao Paulo, are expected to be the main focal points as Bolsonaro attempts to demonstrate strong popular support as polls continue to prove growing discontent with the president. Controversially, the president has actively called security forces officers to attend demonstrations with official uniforms to highlight strong backing from security forces despite legal prohibitions. The protests are expected to target the Supreme Federal Court and Congress in Brasilia, while the president is expected to be present in the Avenida Paulista in Sao Paulo. Public property destruction is possible, particularly in Brasilia.
Meanwhile, in Lebanon, further violent clashes at petrol stations are likely as groups compete for increasingly scarce resources as fuels and other basic goods. These conditions are likely to cause significant disruptions in surrounding areas despite army deployments. In the UK, the second week of Extinction Rebellion will continue to cause traffic disruptions in the City of London and the surrounding areas of Parliament and Trafalgar Square. Ignacio, thank you for that summary of those other things we're looking at. And I think a couple of reminders there of indeed the, the fragile environment we're currently in. All thank you once again for listening and we look forward to speaking to you again soon. Take care.